Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, I spoke with award-winning author Mark Lee Gardner about his latest book, The Earth is All That Lasts, Crazy Horse, Sitting Bull, and The Last Stand of the Great Sioux Nation, published by Mariner Books in June of this year. Mark Gardner has written eight previous books about historic figures in the American West. So I started this interview by asking him why he chose to explore the lives of the legendary 19th century indigenous leaders known as Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull. Well, Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull were probably the greatest Lakota leaders and warriors of the 19th century. They consistently fought and resisted the encroachment by Euro-Americans upon the Lakota homeland, which is mostly the Northern Plains of the United States, north of the Platte River and all the way up into Canada. Always been interested in history from a child, but I have a very vivid memory of visiting Little Bighorn Battlefield on a family vacation. And that pretty much hooked me on this story. But I have to say that what I was hooked on then was George Custer. I was fascinated by the story of over 200 men wiped out and no one left to tell the tale, you know? So that was very intriguing and really grabbed a hold of me as a child. But now I've done a lot of work for the National Park Service in my career, and I've written the guidebook for Little Bighorn Battlefield. I wrote a short biography of George Custer for the National Park Service, and I've really been drawn to the story of these leaders who were fighting desperately to just maintain their culture. And like I said, to maintain their homeland. And it's a tragic story, but it's also an inspirational story because these two men never signed a treaty. They never agreed to reservation boundaries, and they really just wanted to be left alone. But the sad tale is the United States government was not going to leave them alone. Exactly. And if people know anything about Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, they know the association with the battle at Little Bighorn. So what was the story behind that? The battle of Little Bighorn starts, its beginnings are in discovery of gold in the Black Hills. The Black Hills are in southwestern South Dakota. And I think a lot of people will know the Black Hills from Mount Rushmore National Monument. Mount Rushmore is in the middle of the Black Hills. The Black Hills themselves were kind of almost like their own little continent or island. I mean, it was a higher elevation coming up out of the Great Plains, forested, and it was held sacred by the Lakotas themselves. But also it was a place where they had resources, where they could go for their lodges, for buffalo. It was just central to their life and their religion, very sacred. It was acknowledged in the Treaty of 1868 that most of the Black Hills belonged to the Lakotas. But once the gold is discovered in the Black Hills, there's these flood of Euro-American, mostly white miners. They're ignoring the Treaty of 1868. The U.S. Army pretty much gives up on keeping miners out. And the administration of President Ulysses S. Grant decides that we have to get the Lakotas to change the treaty terms and cede over the Black Hills to the United States. They try to buy it from them. That doesn't work. 
the negotiations break down. And the United States government, they really see the troublemakers in their eyes are the followers of Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull who refuse to give up any land to the United States government. And so their strategy is once they've defeated Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull, it'll be easier to persuade their followers than the other Lakotas to sign a new treaty, giving up the Black Hills. So that's what sets forth this campaign that results in the Battle of the Little Bighorn. The United States Army sends essentially a three-pronged attack. They have three different columns. They're going into the heart of Lakota lands. They have an idea that uh, most of these anti-treaty followers of Sitting Bull are on the areas around the Little Bighorn River and the Rosebud, and they send these different columns in. And George Armstrong Custer's, his 7th Cavalry, is one of those strike forces that's sent in to find the village and to attack. What happens is Custer gets there before the other forces or other columns do. In fact, one of the columns under General George Crook is soundly defeated at the Battle of the Rosebud. And because of the distances involved, Custer doesn't know that this other army has been repulsed. The Lakotas know that there are troops that are looking for them. But as I said before, they really want to be left alone. There's probably as many on this village on the Little Bighorn River. There might have been as many as 5,000 souls there with maybe 1,500 to 2,000 warriors. Mm. And they've defeated uh, one army and they didn't know about the approach of Custer and his 7th Cavalry. So they are surprised. But on the other hand, they quickly rally. And Custer makes the mistake, a huge mistake. He had divided his regiment into three fighting battalions hoping to kind of surround the village, but he had no clue as to how huge this village was. And by dividing his force, the Lakotas and the Cheyennes and their allies were able to hit these individual battalions separately and defeat them. And Custer had over 200 men in his battalion with him. And on Last Stand Hill, as it's known today, his entire unit or battalion was destroyed. But it was a great victory for the Lakotas. And they had no idea who George Custer was. They did know him as Longhair, but nobody knew Longhair was there. They just knew that these were blue coats and long knives and they were coming to kill them. When you talk about blue coats and long knives, what were those names? What did that So mean? that's the translation of Lakota names for soldiers. A blue coat could be any soldier because their uniforms are blue. Uh, long knives refer specifically to cavalrymen because they traditionally carry sabers. Uh, at the Battle of Little Bighorn, they had left their sabers behind. So the soldiers were armed with their Springfield carbines and a Colt six-shooter single-action army revolver. Lakota warriors, Cheyenne warriors, they had a whole array of weapons. Many of them were still fighting with bows and arrows, but others had more modern weapons. And so uh, the uh, soldiers were being struck by both arrows as well as bullets. Mm. So let me back up just a little bit. In your title, you talk about the Sioux Nation. So what is the relationship between the Lakota and the Cheyenne to the Sioux Nation, which is what your book is also about? Exactly. Yeah, the Sioux Nation is actually made up of three different groups. There's the Eastern Sioux, the Middle Sioux, and the Western Sioux. And the Lakotas are part of the Western Sioux. And even within the Lakotas themselves, there are sub-tribes. So Sitting Bull was a Hunkpapa. Crazy Horse was an Oglala. And there's also the Brule. I mean, so there's several of these sub-tribes that make up 
the Western Sioux. Now, the relationship with the Cheyennes, the Cheyennes were close allies and had been for a long time, but not all nations on the Northern Plains were allies. So Custer actually had Indian scouts with him who were enemies of the Lakotas and were helping him to track down this village. But a lot of people were gathering under Sitting Bull because he was a well-liked leader and he was known to be one who wanted to live apart from the white man. And uh, many of them had that same wish. When you talk about the whole idea of nations versus tribes, how did they see themselves? Well, the Euro-Americans, their favorite term was tribes, and they didn't really refer to them as nations. We know today that the Lakotas and the Sioux entirety and sharing a common language are really a nation. But Euro-Americans in the 19th century, they referred to them as tribes. I mean, these people really didn't make much distinction, whether it was Hunkpapa or Oglala or Brule or whatever. I mean, it's for them, it's all Sioux. And Sioux wasn't even a name that they called themselves anyway, which is why I, re- I tend to refer to them by their own name, which is Lakota. And again, that's the Western Sioux, and, and that encompasses Sitting Bull's people and the Crazy Horse's people and all those that actually uh, you know, were part of that treaty that encompassed the Black Hills and, and a large sections of Western South Dakota. Okay. So when were Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull alive? What were their years? Sitting Bull was born in 1831 in March, we think. There's no birth certificate <laughs> at that time. So you use winter counts. The way um, Indian nations kept track of the years was on a hide or a piece of paper. They identified each year by a remarkable event. And so you might see a picture for 1831 of a steamboat or what was called a fireboat. And that was something they never saw before. So that was the year the fireboat we saw on the Missouri River or whatever. So we know pretty well that Sitting Bull was born 1831. Crazy Horse comes about nine years later. And so their time frame is early 1830s until Crazy Horse is murdered in 1877. And then Sitting Bull is murdered in 1890. So we're talking a big chunk of the 19th century. And it's a time of dramatic change. When Sitting Bull was born, and also when Crazy Horse, there was this real window of a balance kind of on the plains where the Lakotas and other tribes were trading buffalo and getting in return manufactured materials, weapons, and all that. And it was fairly ideal for this buffalo culture as long as they could keep other Euro-Americans out. The Lakotas didn't mind white traders because the bartering system helped them to acquire things that they needed. And the traders don't want their land. They just want to trade for hides and robes. But what happens is, is that you have this influx with the Oregon-California Trail. When gold is discovered in Montana and Colorado, it's just this huge encroachment on their territory. And these people aren't just taking gold, but they're burning wood along the rivers, you know, resources for fuel. And they're also hunting buffalo. So they're reducing the number of buffalo for the Lakotas and other tribes. Sitting Bull always welcomed traders. He didn't want soldiers. He didn't want settlers. And he hoped to maintain this homeland of the Northern Plains in that kind of balance. But that was, was not to be. He could not keep them out. And the U.S. government wasn't going to leave them alone. They were going to make sure that they were going to get that land, no matter if it took war or diplomacy. But if it took war, they were definitely willing to do that. And that's what happened. 
one of the things that I found fascinating about your book is that you deal with the lives of these influential leaders, Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. But it's really fascinating to me the amount of rich detail that you provide, not only about the battles, specifics about how the battles progressed and what happened, but also the clothes they wore, their relationships with the women in their lives and the children, mm -hmm. and even how they spoke. So how did you find these rich details? What kind of research were you able to conduct and where did you conduct the research? Sure. And that's exactly what I love to talk about. So I have to credit several Lakotas for that information. Fortunately, in the late 1920s and early 1930s, there were really a slew of researchers, historians, authors who traveled to the various reservations in South Dakota and elsewhere to interview people that knew Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull. Some of the best information I had access to was actually uh, interviews by another author in the late 20s and early 30s. His name was Walter Campbell. He went by the pen name Stanley Vestal. And Vestal wrote a biography of Sitting Bull, and he interviewed extensively all these different individuals who were still alive then that had been followers of Sitting Bull or who had encountered Sitting Bull. A couple of the best sources were his nephews, One Bull and White Bull. And so a lot of the quotes that you see uh, from Sitting Bull are recollections from his nephews. I mean, they had very vivid recollections of Sitting Bull's response to various events or his actions at different battles. And Walter Campbell, I mean, he had great questions because he asked about what kind of shield did Sitting Bull carry? What did he wear? So a lot of those details were in those interviews, which are now at the University of Oklahoma in the special collections, and they're actually digitized. So you can go wow. online and see the actual notebooks that Campbell had with him. And of course, you know, credit also goes to his Lakota interpreters. He had to have an interpreter. But then together with that, one of the great things that benefited my research today, uh, literally millions of newspaper pages have been scanned and digitized. And you can go online and there's four or five different newspaper sites. And what I found and was so grateful for, there were also interviews conducted with individuals in the 19th century. Uh, and mm -hmm. some of these had never been seen before. So mm -hmm. I was able to access where a newspaper correspondent interviewed somebody that participated in the Battle of the Bighorn. And this warrior gave his recollections. And even into the 1930s and 40s, the anniversary is kind of always a time for a reporter to say, oh, let's do an article about the Battle of Little Bighorn. Right. And he would find one of these old survivors, like a guy named Dewey Beard, who was Lakota, and he would interview him. And yeah, I was 16 when the battle happened, and he would tell what he could. So I could combine that with these interviews taken by historians. We also had a couple of phenomenal women in around 1930, Marie Sandoz, who was also a well-known author, and her very good friend, Eleanor Hinman, they went out west in this old jalopy from eastern Nebraska and went to the Pine Ridge Reservation, and they interviewed many people that had known Crazy Horse. Mm -hmm. uh, one of his good friends was still living, a man named He-Dog, and he had very rich recollections. He rode with Crazy Horse. He fought at the Battle of the Bighorn. So just very fortunate to have these interviews. On top of that, many of these warriors drew drawings of their coups, their battle feats. So we actually have drawings by Sitting Bull of the various episodes in his career as a warrior 
where he's shown, you know, this is when he had a battle with Corporal Diltz. And you can see the wound that Sitting Bull shows on himself. They call them ledger drawings. There's lots of these. And so that also gives us a nice idea of the types of dress that was being worn. And even though they're, you know, we would consider them somewhat crude, still, if Sitting Bull draws a blanket coat on him, it's winter, it's cold. If he doesn't have a coat on, well, then it's something that occurs in the summer. And again, we have a very rich artifactual record. A lot of these uh, dress, clothing, beadwork, uh, eagle feather headdresses are preserved. And uh, I've gone to many museums and able to look at these things firsthand. I've seen artifacts that actually belong to Sitting Bull, as well as a few items, not as many items, the Crazy Horse. So it was actually a combination of many things. So we have oral histories, newspaper records, artifacts, and then pictorial records as well. And Sitting Bull was actually photographed numerous times. Once he surrendered, he was in the studio quite often. Now, Crazy Horse, we have no known photograph of Crazy Horse. Are there any drawings of Crazy Horse? There are some pictographs of Crazy Horse, but there's no like a sketch from life or anything that, that would give us an accurate representation of Crazy Horse. We do know a lot about his physical features. Uh, Crazy Horse had absconded with this man's wife and the jealous husband caught up at a village and fired almost point blank with a revolver into Crazy Horse's left cheek. And he had a bad scar from that ever after. And so many people, especially whites that, that encountered Crazy Horse would mention that he had this scar and it kind of gave him a somewhat gruesome look. And we know about the color of his hair and he had light colored hair. It was curly because his nickname as a child was Curly. Um, and more than one observer said that he was light skinned to the point where you might think that he had mixed uh, heritage, perhaps white and American Indian. And what's neat about that, if there ever was a photograph, and there's been several photographs that have been put forth as possibilities, you can dismiss them right away if you don't see that scar. <laughs> so that would help us in confirming, oh yeah, that's probably crazy. Or, but I tell you, he was very modest, shy, reclusive. Mm -hmm. And um, from all accounts, he never had a photograph made. But I, I think it adds to his mystique that we, we don't have a photo. Right. And what about Sitting Bull? What did he look like? Well, Sitting Bull was a stouter individual. Uh, in later years, he was more heavy set. When Crazy Horse was alive and when he died in 1877, he was like in his mid-30s. He was a, still a very muscular warrior. Uh, Sitting Bull had become what they called in the 19th century, he was referred to as an old man chief. He wasn't expected to fight. He was a leader. Uh, he was a spiritual leader, a political leader, and he was to inspire and to govern his people. And once during the reservation era, he doesn't have that fierceness or the look of a warrior that he would have had as a younger man. But um, still, he had a very domineering, impressive look to him, a bearing about him. I mean, he just had a bearing that just spoke leader uh, when you see him as someone that commanded respect. And for a lot of readers uh, that aren't familiar with Lakota culture, for a chief in the tribe, there were several virtues of which you're supposed to have. And one of them is generosity. And a chief was not expected to be a wealthy man. He, he looked after his people and he was always giving things away. And when Sitting Bull finally surrendered, most of his people were in tatters, but Sitting Bull looked the worst of all of them because that was what was expected of a chief. I mean, 
if you had a lot of possessions, well, then you weren't really looking out for your people. You're looking out for yourself. But normally when you saw him, you wouldn't know that he was the chief of this Lakota nation. Wow. The title of your book is a quote from Sitting Bull. Can you explain what that is and what he was referring to? Yes. It was a common phrase of warriors. It was to inspire them to risk their lives and to point out that we're only here a short time. So the earth is all that lasts is to remind them, don't just think of yourselves. You have to think of your people, our nation, and none of us are going to last long. And so they would shout, the earth is all that lasts as a rallying cry. You know, the adage usually goes that history is uh, usually written by the victor. And clearly white Americans were victorious against the Sioux Nation in this whole fight for land. So how did you deal in writing the book with the discrepancies between what the white historical record was versus the indigenous one? Well, I always tried to rely upon primarily those recollections of, for instance, the nephews of Sitting Bull, those individuals that were interviewed in the 1920s and 30s. But um, you bring up a good point because very often in the accounts of these engagements, white officers would have this incredible number of warriors they claimed were killed. And fortunately, in most of these, we do have American Indian accounts of the same engagements. And they would say, well, we only lost five or six and they would name them. And I always felt like they would be the best authority on the losses of their own people. And especially a lot of times, these military officers, they were counting bloody spots on the ground. Well, and that this brings up another thing. Usually in a fight, if a warrior is wounded or killed, they never leave an individual behind, if at all possible. So these military officers, and of course, they're always interested in, in having the numbers. And so they're really guessing. So they see a bloodstained ground. Well, that could have been from a horse. Or maybe somebody rested there, wounded, but then left. But I do find it interesting that normally the white figures of casualties are always much, much higher than the Indian figures. And in my book, I I tried to give both. And I tend to actually go with the Lakotas. I believe theirs most of the time. I mean, it was their people. But it especially is true with the treaties. White men, Euro-Americans were writing those treaties And it's just so sad and tragic when they were interpreted to these Lakota leaders, they weren't getting the best accurate interpretation of what was in those trees. One thing about dealing with oral histories is that sometimes recollections can be faulty. So how do you deal with trying to ferret out the truth when you're dealing with someone's recollections? Sure. Well, some of it's a leap of faith. I mean, if one bull says his uncle said this or whatever, one bull was there, you heard it in person, and I tend to trust him. And the other thing I do is that I try to match something up with combined sources as far as like, uh, does this fit Sitting Bull's character or personality? Do we know that he felt this way or acted this way? And then two, I made a point of not consulting, say, oral histories done in the the 21st century, you know, uh, for people living today. I only wanted oral histories of people that actually knew Crazy Horse or Sitting Bull or actually participated in the things that I was writing about. Somebody that was a little bighorn veteran or uh, fought at one of the various engagements I talk about. What was your decision about the way in which you referred to Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse 
while that's what their names translated to, that was not their Lakota names. Was there any consideration as a writer to say, well, let me at least, you know, put in the names as they appeared in their language, as opposed to just what the names translated to? Yes, I did give that a lot of thought. And I rarely give maybe once or twice what Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull's names are in Lakota. And I made the same decision with a lot of words. And it was a really tough decision, but I leaned towards narrative and I wanted it to be able to flow. And I didn't want the reader to get hung up on a pronunciation of uh, a Lakota word. Now with the tribes themselves, of course, I use Lakota, I use Hunkpapa, I use Oglala. But my feeling was, is that I wanted to keep the narrative flowing. To me, for English readers, I felt the the translated words were more evocative, like long knives and three stars and long hair. I felt that that gave an imagery that I just preferred over using the Lakota spelling. But I could see someone going the other way. But I just felt for narrative itself, I wanted it to flow on the page. And I just didn't want a reader getting hung up. And many of these Lakota words, there are a lot of accent marks. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm not even going to try to pronounce some of them myself. And I've been looking at them for five years. So um, <laughs> anyway, so that was the decision I made in writing the book. And I hope it's the right decision. Uh, we'll see, I guess. What drew you to these two men in particular? I just find them so inspiring because of their principles they always resisted. They never signed a treaty, even though there were other leaders who did. And Crazy Horse, when he finally, in 1877, in the winter, when his people were starving, you know, Sitting Bull decided, I'm going to take my followers to Canada. So he was in exile for four years. But what I so admired about Crazy Horse in that moment, he said, why should I leave the land that's ours? And he decided to stay. And because of starvation, he had to surrender. But that principle of this is our land and it's not right. And we're going to fight until we can't fight. And so I admired that about them, their principles. And they were such true leaders. It seemed like every thought was for their people mm -hmm. and for their followers. And the other thing about both Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull was that they were these incredible legendary warriors. We don't always think about that with Sitting Bull, but Sitting Bull, he started his career as a young man and a warrior. And that was part of climbing into leadership was your ability to lead fellow warriors. And so he was just as much a warrior as Crazy Horse in his younger days. And so I admired their fighting abilities, which are legendary. I just think they're such inspirational individuals and they continue to inspire to this day, whether it was the Wounded Knee Takeover of 1973, the Dakota Access Pipeline protests. I think a lot of people, and especially Lakotas, can look back and be inspired by these two men who ultimately gave their lives for their people. What was the most challenging aspect of writing about these two gentlemen? Well, Crazy Horse was probably more challenging in that when I write a book, I like to see a lot of their words that have been spoken. I like to see quotes. We don't have a lot of words that were recorded by Crazy Horse. So as I told my agent, Jim Donovan, I said, Jim, 
I'm going to use every single quote I can find of Crazy Horace. Whatever he said, it's going to be in the book, which it is. I do think that quotes really immerse the reader. It gives you insights. Uh, probably the overriding challenge was that it's a completely different culture from what I grew up and experienced. And so I had to do massive reading into Lakota religion, foodways, the material culture. And fortunately, there's a lot of that literature out there. Mm -hmm. um, but still, I mean, there's this culture gap. And I really wanted to write their perspective. And then the, the other challenges are just you don't want to drown the reader in detail. And there was so much going on in that period from the 30s up through the 90s. I mean, it seemed like there was one battle, one treaty after another. And actually, there was one treaty after another. And each time, as Sitting Bull said, each time there's a treaty, we lose land. Wow. Um, so, yeah. yeah, it took me five years. It took me longer than any of my other books um, wow. because of those. That was award-winning author Mark Lee Gardner talking with me about his latest book, The Earth is All That Lasts, Crazy Horse, Sitting Bull, and The Last Stand of the Great Sioux Nation, published by Mariner Books in June of this year. We recorded this interview via Zoom on June 16, 2022. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day.